Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. Tina Payne Bryson is a two times New York Times bestselling author and nationally recognized child development specialist and psychotherapist. We are so excited that you came back for a second round. For those listeners who missed the first one, we're going to link the first episode, which was really fun and exciting. So welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I always love getting to talk to you. You and I could do hours and hours and hours, I'm sure. So I'm so excited to be back to chat a little bit more. That's true. And actually, you're going to be in Austin soon, November 4th. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm going to be giving a talk, I think, on the 3rd, the evening before for parents and community members, and then all day on the 4th for professionals. And I'll be talking about uh, interpersonal neurobiology and application to our lives, whether that's personal or professional. So I'm really excited to come and join with my people, you know, my my um, interpersonal neurobiology folks. <laughs> that's right. Austin has a very large IPNB group, uh, thanks to this group, Austin and Connection. So all of the local listeners and anybody actually regionally come see Tina. It's going to be totally worth it. She's a blast to see live and in person. So speaking of that, what what is your interest these days? What are some of the things you've been thinking about and would like to uh, share with our audience? Gosh, you know, I I wish I had more time to read more because I just feel like information comes faster than I can even get close to digesting. But what I'm really interested in right now, it's really, really fun because I have this um, interdisciplinary team, a clinical practice that I formed in the last two years. It's called the Center for Connection. And I discovered this or decided I wanted to do an interdisciplinary clinical practice because as a clinician, I was having, you know, these these moments with clients where, you know, I was trying everything I'd been kind of trained to do and it just felt like it was falling flat or I was was feeling like, gosh, you know, if I really want to peel back the layers to find out, well, let me give an example. So let's say I would, you know, I'd have like a 10-year-old little girl that was having panic attacks frequently and you know, I knew to kind of look, to, you know, if there was trauma history, if there was family history of anxiety, if there was some, you know, discrepancy in, you know, the demands of her environment versus her, her capacities to look at attachment histories, you know, all of these things. And as I started doing that, I kind of was like, okay, well, what her anxiety, what her panic attacks are about are about states of hyper arousal. And I, you know, I had been learning about Stephen Gorgeous's polyvagal theory. And so I was kind of thinking about how she was kind of going into these states of hyperarousal where she would have shifts in her physiology and all of these things. And so, but then I was like, but why? Like, what is the, you know, can we really peel back the layers for this? So as I began to do that in deeper and deeper ways, like I'd get to a new, oh, now I've found, you know, that what's really going on here is she has some sensory things going on and that's a huge contributor to what's going on. Or I would discover, you know, there was this massive attachment loss in infancy or, you know, all these different things. The more I kept going, the more I was like, oh, there's more I'm missing. And so I um, I started realizing that I needed, if I was going to really peel back the layers to find out the why, to really chase the why, so that I would know where the targeted intervention would be most effective, I pulled together this team. So I have occupational therapists and educational therapists, speech and language pathologists, neuropsychologists, and then lots of mental health people who have expertise all across the lifespan and in different areas. And, um, you know, what's really cool is we sit together for two hours every week and we really wrestle with these cases. 
And we have a lot of, you know, a lot of cases that are uber complex and it's hard to figure out where to start. There are medical things going on and sensory things going on and they might also have learning disabilities and trauma histories, et cetera. And what we've been doing that's so interesting is to, you know, just when we think, okay, oh, the reason I'm going to be, you know, talking about a case when I come to Austin, you know, it was a case of this child that was super dysregulated, young child. And, you know, when we did a full evaluation, we found that this kid had a learning learning challenge. And we thought, okay, oh, well, that explains, you know, a lot of why he's reactive. So we'll have an educational therapist work with him and we'll work with the school, et cetera. But that wasn't even the whole picture. So then we we also had a clinician who had been training with Bruce Perry in the NMT model. So she did this whole assessment on regulation from the bottom up and where the breakdowns were. And I think I get so excited right now about constantly being in a place of not knowing and being hungry to know. And so then I learn something new and then I start seeing everything through that lens too. So that was a really long answer to the bottom line (laughs) is I'm more and more interested in everything kind of coming back to regulation and coming back to the idea that bottom up and across, meaning like relational, is more and more important the more I learn about everything. That is so funny because that is exactly, we are in such synchrony <laughs> that I, uh, even with cases, with adult cases, it's the same thing. I've, you know, the more I learn about it, the more I can almost just even kind of visualize what's going on neurologically. And I think the better that we're able to convey that to folks so that like in any given moment, what state that you're in and if you can know what to do about it or your partner's state, if you see them begin to dysregulate that, you know, we can really break this down. And actually, it's just super exciting to be able to help people learn it and know what to do. And we must be on to something. And I think there's these different little nodules of people studying this stuff. And we kind of keep coming. I don't think it's reductionistic. I actually think we're getting to the core of something really important. I do too. And I just have to say, you know, two huge, you know, I've studied with Dan Siegel forever and we've written these books together and we have another one coming out in January called The Yes Brain that we're really excited about. And then we have another book coming out after that. We don't know the date yet. It's all about the science of attachment. Um, and that one will be called Showing Up. And so I studied with Dan for a really long time, but I, w- I want to say too that two huge influences on how I'm thinking and rethinking what I've quote unquote known as a clinician and as a parent and partner is uh, Bessel van der Kolk's work and especially his book, The Body Keeps the Score, and um, Pat Ogden's work and the sensory motor psychotherapy, and then uh, Stephen Fortas's polyvagal theory. I think the three of those kind of approaches have just completely taken me down a, a different road, especially different from most of my training that was so top down and so much about talk and insight and all of that, which kind of, you know, it leads me to rethink and wonder, I guess I'm doing a lot of wondering, like we've known for a long time from the research that regardless of what your attachment histories have been, that the, you know, the one of the most important predictors for how we function is not so much what has happened to us or the kinds of attachment histories we have but whether or not we've reflected on them and made sense of them. So I think, you know, my whole professional career, 
I've worked with parents and I've shared, you know, that research with um, many, many audiences to talk about. It's really about reflecting and creating this coherent narrative so that you have awareness and that you understand how these, these experiences have wired your brain. But I think, Sue, that I've forgotten in all those years of thinking that and, and, and doing that, that the brain is embodied. And so I'm sort of, you know, really talking about creating a coherent narrative. That's a very um, prefrontal kind of experience. And it's very mm-hmm. much a top-down um, thing. But the truth is, based on what I know now and the more and more that I read, and I don't know that the research has captured this fully yet, is that I need to be able to have a coherent making sense state in my body before mm-hmm. I can ever get to that. So, you know, the idea of reflection and using my prefrontal cortex, that is so far, that is so much the cart before the horse if, if we can't be in states of regulation. So I right. feel like the first thing we need to do when we're talking about repairing our attachment histories is to really think about the vagus nerve and the brain stem and the diencephalon and the limbic system and, and these more subcortical structures and doing some work there. Yes. As, as clinicians, we're going to do that mostly relationally, but we can't get to the making sense process. And I think, I, I think for a long time we've taken that research and we've said, okay, well, if we, just, if we help the people remember and we help, you know, we'll make them feel safe as they do that, but we'll help them tell their stories. And once they've told their story and they've made sense of it, then they can have new attachment relationships. And I just think that's in a way oversimplistic and it's missing the horse. <laughs> No, I totally get it. It makes me also think of the work of Alan Shore of this uh, bottom-up sort of right forward. And so let me give you an example just so that we can make this more concrete for folks, if that's okay, for you to respond to that as a parenting example that I can imagine many of the parents that are listening might uh, relate to, which is that if, if I were asked on a test, like what the right answer is about how to respond to, say, a temper tantrum or a teenager pushing boundaries, you know, most of us are pretty good at knowing what we're supposed to do. Uh, most, not everybody, but most, I would say a large portion would, would kind of know generally what to do. But when it comes down to it, sometimes we just don't do it at all, <laughs> right? When we're live and in vivo. And this is exactly what you're talking about. It's more brainstem. We've lost our cortical f- functioning and we are playing out something else. So I thought maybe we could break that down a little bit more of why is it that we might know what to do with our partners or with our kids, but absolutely in, in the heat of the moment, not do it. I, I love that you went there because, you know, even little kids, I mean, I had, I had a six-year-old tell me at school a couple of weeks ago, he said, I know that I am safe at school. I already know that, but I don't really feel safe. So mm-hmm. even a yes. six-year-old knows that there's a difference between what we know and what we feel, right? And yes, so definitely. the bottom line, you know, if, and, and I think about this all the time, you know, I use this example with audiences sometimes is, you know, we all remember being afraid as children, afraid of the dark, afraid of monsters, you know, that kind of thing. And even though we knew our parents were in the house and we knew we were safe in our house and our parents would say, you're perfectly safe, there's no such thing as ghosts and monsters. 
that was all information we knew, but it didn't it didn't make us not feel afraid, right? And speak and so right. here's the here's what this all comes down to is this basic foundational principle in interpersonal neurobiology of integration. And you know, and you're right, Alan Shore is an amazing person to think about how all of this comes together because stuff that we know factual memory or, you know, facts, details that we know are often in the left hemisphere. The stuff we would write down on the test, so to speak, would be more left hemisphere. But right hemisphere is taking in more information from the body and the, the more procedural memory and those kinds of things. And so, you know, when those two sides are integrated, there's a flow of energy and information between them. And what we know and how we feel can be connected. But when emotions run high we lose the ability for that information flow to be as present. And that can have, we can, so that's left and right integration, but we can talk about this in terms of um, more vertical integration too, that, you know, we know we're not supposed to scream, I hate you too, back to our child when they have screamed in, at you, I hate you, or whatever it is. But when we, when our bodies and our subcortical lower structures of the brain go into reactivity, the processing of information happens so much faster, as you know, than in our cortex. And mm-hmm. so it's faster. It takes over. And, and so we lose the ability to be rational and to calm ourselves unless we can do a little bit of a, a kind of an override of that higher brain system to even just for a second to tell us to pause before we react, like I'm going to pause. Right. Right. Give our brain a second, our our cortex a second to be able to weigh in because it's so slow. Well, there's a cheat maybe that we could do too. Is what is like if we even break it down further about if we think about our own parents. So, for example, if I know that I tend to, or that my parents were more cool, or uh, just you know the pull yourself up by the bootstraps that sort of the audience will recognize, kind of on the rub some dirt on it, I'll give you something to cry about, that side of things, then where we might lean in our own periods when we're not doing our best might be in that same direction. So we might, when we lose empathy, because, you know, when you're when you're in a more dismissive state, you actually don't know that you are, right? We think we're fine and other pe- and other people are crazy. That state is very much about being annoyed by someone else's demands and needs that are clearly crazy, right? That are clearly over the top. Yeah. Right. So so a crying child could easily then, you know, begin to trigger us to move more to what is actually dysregulated, but we think it's not dysregulated. Yeah, it is. It it tricks us. It it absolutely tricks us. And when you're, and I I know that state of mind well, that is one that I can go to and that I've I've had to work on. Yeah. And I know that that when I'm in that state and I feel exasperated by someone's demand or need that I think is ridiculous, it's almost the opposite of empathy. I really, it's, it's completely countered empathy and it's really hard for me to get to empathy in right. that state. And you're right, the trick of that one's really tricky because like when you go, when you go more kind of hot and crazy, you kind of yeah. have a sense. <laughs> at least you know. At least you know you're <laughs> <laughs> right. But this other one's really tricky because you feel like you're totally in control, and um, and and you feel like you know you can justify it. You, you're you're actually going so left that you can you can kind of 
you know, come up with a really rational argument as to why you're right to respond. Right. And you might even be under responsive to your child's particularly negative expression, thinking that you're helping them. Like it actually might be, you know, we don't I don't want to grow a a crybaby. So I better really teach them that they really need to have something to cry about. You know, I mean, yeah, for sure. And the culture reinforces that. I mean, that's what that's what a lot of parenting approaches and, and approaches in schools and all kinds of things are about is that, you know, we're supposed to ignore tantrums and we're supposed to, you know, give them grit by making sure they're not spoiled and making sure that we're not indulging them or giving the one that I hear a lot is like, you don't want to give them attention. You don't want to reinforce that behavior. Because they're just looking for attention. So <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we wouldn't we wouldn't want to give that to them. <laughs> No, how terrible that would be. Yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, the argument I make about that is that, you know, attention is as much a need as is um, food, water, and sleep, because if you don't have an adult's attention on you, the lion might eat you and no one will notice, right? And, right. Um, and, and so if it's a need, if you are ignored, if it's not responded to, then in order to um, get your need met, you have to go with even bigger behaviors. So then the parents are like, well, I'm not going to reinforce that negative behavior, so I'm going to ignore them, and it becomes this cycle Whereas if parents would just lean into it and say, it looks like you're wanting to show this to me, or you, are you needing some time with me, or let's read a book together, or you know, whatever, often that kind of satiates the need, and then you don't have the same kind of acting out behaviors. But yeah, the culture and around how we're supposed to handle or control children's behavior very much is that avoidant dismissing approach. Right. And so that's some of it is like, if we can, this is sort of the cheat part, is if parents, we can really think of our history and know that we might lean in that direction when we get stressed, that that it might help us like be able to make that correction. And then the same on the other side, right? That if the bottom up is that when under stress, we feel abandoned, or I'm actually thinking about parenting with teens and how teens have to push away. And how that that can be triggering kind of on the other side of things of, or abandonment or, you know, being able to be differentiated or say no, you know, again, this is just if we think if the audience, if you think about your own parenting, and the way you were parented, I mean, and were you supported in separating and emancipating with your own folks? And if that's the case, great, it's going to come easier for you. But if it was more rocky, then that might be just, it might be a vulnerable area for you in your own parenting. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And it's childhood from, you know, toddler years all the way through is very much kind of a, an unfolding of that differentiation and how to navigate that linkage too. And, you know, just like you were talking about in the adolescent years, you know, the, the toddler years are also, uh, toddler and preschool years are also very much about, you know, differentiating in the mind and not you and That's you right. know, no and all that. That's right. The, so, right. <laughs> it's all treacherous. It's all treacherous. It's all treacherous and really common for, you know, a child to prefer one parent over the other and to say, not you, I want mommy or, you know, whatever. And so I think you're right. And so what can happen is we may have vulnerabilities in those areas where we feel not seen. Uh, we might feel like, the, you know, we have a, a, um, a someone who's going to be unpredictable in terms of whether or not they're going to meet our needs, right? And so it can right. activate us. And I think no, you're right. The key is knowing where our vulnerabilities lie. That's the coherent narrative part is to say, okay, I know that given, and I'll just speak for myself, you know, I had um, a mother who 
uh, both my parents were very young when I was born, but I had a mother who was wonderful in terms of providing secure attachment and was predictable, and she lit up when we walked into the room and all of that. But we, we had a dad who was very much a dismissing approach to relationships, and I can trace that back. You know, I did a little bit of, when I first learned about the adult attachment interview, and I threw out some questions at the family dinner table, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is textbook, and I could trace it back generations. But I know that for myself as a partner and a marriage and as a mom and as a daughter who has, you know, parents with vulnerabilities at times because of aging and all that kind of thing, I can easily go into, you know, left brain approach where I just know yes. all about solving the problems and just getting the things done and not really yes. sitting into <laughs> being present, right, where I'm not present. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I can also... You know, I have a child with um, chronic health issues, and I've struggled with chronic health issues. And so, and so, you know, I feel a little worn out by my own struggle with that. And so when I have a, my son is in pain or he's not feeling well, it's really easy for me to, be, to do that, kind of rub some dirt on it, like you're just going to have to push through. And, and sometimes that's appropriate, but not without a conscious decision to also be present to what's happening, right? Absolutely. And would you mind, you know, we had been talking um, offline about exactly these things, our vulnerabilities, and even with all of the work that we do, and that we can turn around and teach it. And, you know, I I have a similar uh, background, so I know the rub the dirt on it for sure. And, but around, like, particularly when things happen with our own parents, and so we might have done our own therapy or through healthy relationships and through our own body work have resolved a whole lot of things, but there can be moments of real vulnerability. <laughs> that, <laughs> so uh, is that anything you, you would care to speak to? Yeah. I mean, I remember one of the first times I was uh, in Dan Siegel's study group and I was teaching his book, Parenting from the Inside Out with Mary Hartzell had just come out and it's such a beautiful book to help us kind of walk through how our brains have been wired and where our vulnerabilities are. So I, I still love the book, but I was teaching a parenting from the inside out class and I was, uh, we were in someone's home and after the first session, I, you know, was saying goodbye to people and I noticed one woman hanging back and she was crying and I said, Oh my goodness, did, you know, what's going on? And, and she said, damn it. And I said, what, what's happening? And she said, I've already done therapy. I've already been through all of this. Yes. Now, yeah. <laughs> And it was like, oh, it's not one and done, you know? And there was sort of this moment of like, dang, I already kind of did my work. Well, you know, I think it's it's very much ongoing. And as things in like, you know, the brain and the body are such association machines, right? So even mm-hmm. though we've kind of reflected on things, we are constantly new people in new environments, but with old wiring, right? So what happens is, you know, new new things can happen. Like you said, you know, your kids become teenagers and they start to pull away. And that's a new thing that you hadn't experienced for five years or whatever. You know, so I know I shared with you um, personally, you know, my uh, my dad died unexpectedly this last year at age 64. Yes. And um, thank you. It's been, you know, and we're, um, I'm just a couple of weeks away from the memorial service. So, you know, I... I don't know that I have a full coherent narrative about, you know, his loss and how that fits into kind of the arc of the relationship and all that. But I'm working through new things now in response to that, you know, where I think I remember when I first learned about attachment science and it was so liberating to me at that moment in time because my dad 
was very much the kind of guy who was really fun to be around and he could join with people as long as he wasn't looking at them face-to-face and having an in-depth conversation, right? Intimacy was not something he was comfortable with, so he'd be cooking in the kitchen and there'd be other things going on and he'd be fine for a few hours, but then he couldn't couldn't handle too much closeness and connection. And, Mm -hmm. um, And so I remember when I learned about this attachment stuff and I went, oh, it's not me. It's that his yes. brain has been wired in that way, right? That that yes. he grew up with parents who were dismissing, and he has a you know he has a dismissing wired brain, and so he doesn't know how to show up for me. He doesn't know his brain is not capable um, at this point in time. And I think you know one of the sad things that happens with um, with death is that there's no more chance to have a shift in the relationship, right? Like. So there's there's grief and loss around not just the loss of him and him not being, you know, around in life and missing out on things, but also grief around, you know, what I didn't get that I wish I had had and what he didn't get from his parents and how he wasn't able to kind of show up in that way for his grandkids. And so there's all this kind of lost opportunity and, and grieving around all of that. So, yeah, there's always uh, new stuff that gets activated. I so appreciate you sharing that. It is, you know, it's such a it's so wonderful to kind of have models that we can know this stuff so deeply and still have so much to learn. And in particular, with the grief and then the loss, being able to feel and see him as a whole person and but also like my this is kind of I think where you're going is that you can maybe feel your own grief in ways of what you missed as some of these events happen which is part of the I think what you were talking about at the beginning about the bottom-up healing to get that because part of the whole thing about the more dismissive side is that we just bypass what we need and so that's kind of how I'm hearing what you're saying is there's a chance for you not just you all of us to be able to go back in and feel what it was that we had to make ourselves not feel that we sort of bypassed. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, like I said, that's such a good, that's such a tendency of mine is to kind of go, you know, to that place. And I think, you know, for me, the grief experience and now it's been 10 months has been fascinating. And this also shows my vulnerability here is that, I can easily kind of talk about, oh, this is, you know, the, this is the process of grief has been very interesting from a neurobiological, neuropsychological perspective. And I can talk about it in a very left brain, top down way about the, the um, neurophysiological changes that happened while I was grieving. Um, and all that's super interesting, but it, it can keep me from being present to my grief, right? And it can mm-hmm, keep me yes. from all of that. But, you know, I remember, you know, people, uh, people were lovely and sent me lots of cards and things like that right after my dad passed. And it was really interesting. And you know, obviously, you, we could actually do a whole attachment classification system based on the kinds of notes people write when you lose someone. <laughs> um, because some of the notes and responses were awful. Mm-hmm. And some of, and some of them were amazing. Well, well, what was what was awful? What was awful and what was amazing? As far as just, I don't mean like calling anybody out, but just what what was a miss? I can hide identities. My very favorite was from um, actually a colleague of mine. Uh, I'll even say her name because it, it was so good, Dr. Mona Delahook, who um, mm-hmm. 
is definitely in our IPN community, um, and she writes this amazing blog about blog about kids with disabilities and showing up for their parents and all that. Anyway, but she um, she sent me flowers, and on the card, all she wrote was just reminding you how much you are loved. Oh, yeah. and it was so beautiful because it was like mm-hmm. oh, this is like this moment of devastation and heartbreak for me, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like you know, the bad things, which were like, at least you have a lot of people to love you, you know, or something like that. It wouldn't have felt the same, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the bad responses were ones where people were like, you know, I really want to hear how you're doing. Can you please get back with me, right? It's like it was about their need, right? Right. Oh, Um, I totally know what you mean. (laughs) Yeah. Or the the ones that are like, at least it was for, you know, um, I'm sure God has a plan and purpose for this, you know, or, Mm -hmm. you know, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things that were just really, like, things that were about them making them feel better to say them. It really was not Mm -hmm. holding me in mind. But, you know, one thing someone said to me that was really interesting, and I can't even remember who it was. It might have even been someone just that I didn't know very well. But someone Mm -hmm. said, get ready for a new relationship with your dad. And at the time, I thought it was kind of an odd statement, and I was kind of like, I don't want a new relationship with my dad. Like, I want him here, you know what I mean? Like, it was kind of a little off-putting at first, right. but I think about that statement a lot because, you know, this goes back to what you were just saying about how when you have a new experience, it can kind of open things up and help you see and feel and experience things you didn't have. And what's been really interesting, my dad was, you know, fairly not present in my life, especially at different times. You know, he would disappear for periods. We wouldn't hear back from him. He wouldn't, he wasn't very responsive, even though he lived, you know, fairly close. And in this grief process, I feel like I think about him every day. I am, you know, and I, he is, he is more present to me now than he was when he was alive. And so that's really interesting because it allows me to go, oh my gosh, like that was, I never had that. Even, you know, when he was alive, he wasn't, it wasn't like we had the kind of connection that, that felt like it was present within me all the time. And so mm-hmm. that's the work I have to do now to be like, oh, that's what it, I, I couldn't hold him in my mind because he wasn't a secure person for me. But now in mm-hmm. his, in his death, you know, the memories and the, the missing him and all of that is, is very much a part of my daily landscape. And it's, it's painful, but it's really nice too. Oh, totally. And you know, it's, I just am so touched by what you're saying and the opportunity to re, you know, there's a saying now, you know, it's never too late to have a happy childhood that we can use our minds. Like I was even imagining him giving you more and being more responsive and really being able to do reparative work for this younger part. And that that's certainly the direction that people are doing now in therapy is like, no, we get to re-envision with a ideal parent and really actually give our our young selves a more full-bodied experience of what we actually needed. And I think, you know, not, I couldn't have said this the first six months. I think I'm kind of on the other side of that, you know, really kind of like my nervous system was absolutely in a trauma state. I had a hyper, you know, hyper reflex to everything. I would hear a noise and I would jump and I experienced anxiety like I never had before. You know, I would wake up anxious in the morning, like from sleep, my brain was working on it. And so I was definitely in this kind of hyper arousal, down to hypo arousal kind of swing. And and there were all kinds of 
just even the way my my processing speed slowed down, my attention was funky. It was I felt like I probably shouldn't have even driven for the first couple of weeks because mm-hmm. my brain was just operating so differently. But now that I'm kind of on the other side of that, what I think is so interesting now as I reflect is that mm-hmm. I feel like the experience of loss, and I know lots of people have had loss, you know, loss. I'm 46. I was I was 45 when my dad died, and so I'm kind of late in life to have this first experience of, of this kind of a devastating loss. But I feel like it completely opened things up in new ways in my life. It opened things up in new ways in my marriage that allowed me to be vulnerable at a time when I needed to be more vulnerable. It allowed me to really have a bodily felt sense of what loss is and what kind of that state of hypervigilance threat response is and how even though I knew, like I remember talking to my therapist and I said, I know all the strategies to regulate my nervous system. I know them all. I've taught them. I've written about them, and they're not working. (laughs) And she said, they will. They will. You're in this moment of, you know, really intense loss, and they will. But, you know, she, she really was just encouraging me to be just really gentle with myself and to really do the things that I had been talking about in most ways were not top, the top down things did not work for me at that time. Now they do because I'm not in the gulf of it. But I think that, you know, just really like what I found worked really well for me was going and walking outside, just being outside, not listening to anything, not talking to anyone, just walking and being outside. So moving my body helped a lot. And mm-hmm. um, just doing really gentle, very short meditation kinds of things, just paying attention to my breath and you know, um, petting dogs helped me a lot. Those kinds mm-hmm. of things that were much more kind of giving my whole system the space mm-hmm. to be like, you're in pain and you're totally safe. Somebody's got you. Lots of people have got you and you're, you're going to mm-hmm. be okay. And mm-hmm. um, so I think, that, you know, it was it, obviously not to wish for his loss at all, but it has been an incredible gift for me to open mm-hmm. up new areas of work, Personally, mm-hmm. new areas of things to dig into, but also mm-hmm. new ways to see and feel with people and to become a better problem solver in terms of saying, okay, sometimes the problem solving stuff isn't always the best thing. It's really more of the bottom up body stuff and about the connection. And I think that's, you know, one other thing that's really kind of blowing my mind is that still, and this is to bring it back to the attachment stuff. Even if I don't know what to do with a client or with my kids or whatever, is that if I really focus on connection and being present with someone or having Mm -hmm. someone be present with me, that that is bottom up. Relationship is bottom up. It's about co-regulating and having someone else just being present to let your whole nervous system feel somebody's here, I'm going to be okay, I'm not alone in this. And that, you know, more than anything is what allows our systems to rewire for that secure attachment is to have those bodily felt sense states of connection, regulation, and attachment. And that's how we're wired. Wow, I can't you just said that so perfectly. (laughs) I am so touched. You said relationship is bottom up, you know, and that defies, you know, because I come from the avoidance side too. it totally defies everything that our body knew before then, which was that 
protecting ourselves was, you know, versus like the interpersonal was what was threatening and not in a conscious way, but just, just implicitly. Right. So, oh my gosh, that is so, and I also really love what you said about the, that if you don't know what to do, if you don't know what to do in any moment, like moving back into presence with yourself and then connecting with someone is just always going to be a good regulatory safe move to move you closer into a more uh, integrated place. Yeah. You know, I met with a mother and a daughter um, last week and the daughter, daughter had gotten in trouble for drinking and the mom was, you know, worried and was basically like, you know, can you talk to her kind of thing? And so I talked with the daughter for just 20 minutes or so. And I, I brought the mom into the room and, um, and I basically said, you know, Whatever is going on, you know, unless this is an emergency where she's really in danger, this behavior, this particular, you know, drinking when she wasn't supposed to be drinking, let's think of that as a back burner issue. And it's your relationship with each other that's front burner always. And this event that has happened has become front burner and it's become the whole house. And I think you guys have forgotten you need to talk to each other and and just facilitating things like, you know, helping the daughter's say to her mom, I actually don't even know what your expectations are and if they're even possible for me and to open up connection between them. And so that's what I often say to parents, to myself and to my audiences is you don't know, if you don't know what to do, you don't even have to know. You can always go back to the four S's where you help yourself or someone else feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And secure is really about the predictability that someone's going to continue to be there. So that's what can always, you know, get us there. And Sue, you're right. You know, I, the, I don't know if your family was like this, but, you know, that idea of relationship being bottom up is not at all how our brains were wired if we grew up in a dismissing avoidant with a dismissing parent, because the whole relationship is based on top-down left-brain interactions. I mean, that's really right. what it is. Like, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but like, we had like family conversations at dinner. Family dinner conversation was always about the dog or the weather or the neighbors or, you know, there was no, there was nothing. Very concrete. Was about, yeah. yeah, there was nothing about the internal landscape at all. You know, what are your thoughts or wishes or what did you experience today? And, you know, it was all about performance and all the external stuff. And so that's even more why relationships that are providing those four S's and that sense of presence and connection, you know, that happens in therapy or, or between a parent and child or whatever, between best friends or partners can be so restorative and so healing along with kind of that awareness that we were that coherent narrative that we were talking about to have that felt sense of someone's got me right and 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 not just the me that you know they're looking at my grades and you know the funny thing the dog did but me my you know my internal world that's exactly right and that's the only way to update it's it's almost you know the brain being the anticipation machine so we're just expecting what has always happened but with these new whether it be therapy or these losses that open things up i'd love how you described that that that's the chance to do the bottom up again, but in this more reparative. So we've talked about, like you said, coherent narrative, but uh, I like what you're saying. It's really has to be an embodied coherence and where that we feel our way through it. And it's really uh, radical compared to for those 
of us who didn't that don't come by this naturally <laughs> and that we have to earn our way towards it <laughs> um it's it really is a radical like it, there can be consciousness in redoing it but it has to involve the body and the heart to get us all the way there and i you know i love it when i have moments myself or when i have a client come back and talk to me about this that when you like let's talk about parent child when you really have that embodied sense of connection with with your child in a moment where you're really present with them, especially if they're falling apart and having a hard time and you stay in that green regulated state and you, you're present to it and you're soothing and you access empathy and they calm down and you feel close to your child. Like when those moments happen, it is so powerful and it's such a huge radical contrast to the pre, you know, to the, the opposite of that, which is, I know as a parent, I should be, li- I should listen to my child when they're upset, and so I'm going to stand here and listen to them, like right, just, right, you know, being really being present. And I think, you know, that's there's a lot of fear that if my child's falling apart or they're upset about something that they're they're not being grateful because they want popcorn, and I'm taking them to movies anyway, and now they're spoiled because they also want popcorn. And they're having a meltdown about that, <laughs> and you know, if right. I if I if I show up with presence and say I can see you're really disappointed, you were really hoping popcorn would be part of the deal. That that's going, you know, there's a lot of fear that that's going to turn your children into a spoiled child, but. What we know when we experience these successes, these moments that feel so right and that regulate us is to, you know, then you're, you're present. I know you really wanted that popcorn. It's, you're disappointed about that. You had an expectation. Um, you still hold the boundary, right? You don't have to give in and to say, mm-hmm. so then your child feels felt and they feel understood. And then they actually come out of it in a way that their brain moves back into a state of integration and that gets developed over time. So, we really don't have to be afraid that um, that that's doing our children harm by really identifying it and being present to those emotions, even if they're over things that we think are silly or spoiled. So here's an example in reverse that just adds to this, which is that so sometimes those of us, again, who didn't come by all this naturally, I was having a moment with my teenager. He was really wanting to do this camp that was much of the summer. He'd mowed lawns and he'd done all these things to try to earn his way to do it. And he really wanted his big deal. And it's very challenging and hard to get into this. uh, uh, just a debate camp. And so I'm worrying and worrying, but you know, I don't want these people raising you. I want to raise, you know, and all these things. And at the end, at the end, I was like, but this is your last summer. You know, this is the last summer. I'm almost in tears. And he's like, mom, and he's like, mom, he goes, mom, you have me for the rest of your life. This isn't the last summer. So there could be these moments when actually the security that we've been able to give to our kids can or that it can uh, reverse where it's like, oh, yeah, I forget. We're, we're not in crisis here. <laughs> this is a very normal good. Uh, he was so able to can, kind of reflect it back. Exactly. So uh, th- there is hope for those parents out there that might be listening. <laughs> uh, we're probably, you know what I mean, that it we can get it from all directions. And uh, the, our kids don't break. And we don't break. And so there's these constant interpersonal opportunities for this rewiring that that is exactly what you're talking about and what your books are about. Tina, I think that you are one of the most talented people right now out there being able to translate this really, well, you're really good at being able to translate the complexities into these very usable, understandable things for a wider audience. So it's really, really true. Yeah, it's ongoing work as we continue to 
you know, move towards integration and healing ourselves. And it's ongoing work to keep trying to be present to the struggles that our world has and the struggles that the clients that show up that are in crisis have. And, you know, I think um, there's, we're just at a really exciting time because we know so much more and we're able to share it with each other. And that's what it's all about anyway, is connecting with each other and um, sharing what we know and how we apply it. And uh, which is why these podcasts are so great too, because you're able to kind of share and, and connect with all kinds of people and, and share what you know, Sue. Yeah, that really has been just such a surprise um, how much it's taken off. And so for our audience, you know, one of the best ways to learn is to turn around and explain it to someone else. So what we really encourage you to do is to share the podcast, certainly, but also see if you can, to your partner or to your kids, embody some of what Tina Payne Bryson has been sharing with us today around what's important and it's just a really a good way to integrate it more deeply in our own bodies is to turn around and teach it. But in that vein, if you are regional, if you're local, be sure and try to show up for this workshop that's going to happen very soon. Whether you are a therapist or not, this is good for educators, teachers, clients that see parents. I mean, clients that see parents. Listen, to, see how it, you know, we can get it from anywhere. <laughs> Therapists that see parents. Uh, send your clients. A lot of times therapists are a little shy about referring their clients to things, but this is a perfect opportunity to, it, it'll actually strengthen your individual work because not only are we learning about kids, uh, I've sent some patients of mine just even to learn more about attachment and what we're working on as adults in the session. So this is actually a really wide audience here. It's not just for parents. And also, so would you mind sharing your contact information for those who would like to get in touch? Uh, and- sure. My uh, my website is tinabryson.com, and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And if you're curious about the clinical practice I mentioned, that website is thecenterforconnection.org. So, yeah, there's all kinds of ways to connect. And from my tinabryson.com website, there are links to my Facebook and Twitter page. And I like to share a lot of other people's work as well because I think – if we can pull together lots of different ideas and thoughts, we can approach things from a more holistic perspective. And that's really fun to connect across disciplines, too. That's awesome. I totally agree. So thank you very much for listening. And be sure and send us a note and let us know what you think of this. And if you have any other topics that you would like to hear about, we always love to hear from you. And in particular, any rating and reviews, those make a really big difference for us. So thank you. We'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.